and we'll read that one at verse 8. Exodus 17 at verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now you can keep your Bible open there or put a marker there and turn briefly to Deuteronomy chapter 25. That's on page 230. Deuteronomy 25. page 230, and the last three verses of the chapter, at verse 17, where uh, God says to Israel, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So turning back to Exodus 17. On page 80, and in verse 15, Exodus 17 at verse 15, Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, as I mentioned, the chapter uh, records two incidents which took place at a place called Rephidim. 
on the journey to the land of promise. Now, we looked at the first one over the last couple of weeks when the Lord provided water from the rock for, for his own people. This incident obviously took place very shortly afterwards, and we'll just refer to it as the battle with Amalek, the first battle that Israel fought as a people. Now, just as we did last time, I think we should look for an interpretive key for understanding the real meaning of this battle. And you'll remember that we did that last week with the water from the rock. We found the interpretive key in, um, in verse um, 7 of the chapter. When the water came from the rock, he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord. So contention and temptation are the keys for understanding the incident. Now we find the same thing with this battle with Amalek. We find the clue to its meaning in a name. This time it's not a place name, but it's a name for the altar that Moses built when the battle was finished. We're told in verse 15 that he built the altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, or Jehovah Nisai. In the Hebrew, sometimes people use that expression just like they say Jehovah Jireh, which famously means the Lord will provide. Well, here, Jehovah Nisai means that the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my flag. Or I think best of all, the Lord is my standard. Thinking of standard as a, as a kind of flag, but a particular kind of flag, as we'll see later. Now, the reason that he calls the altar, the Lord is my banner, is because of verse 16. He calls it that name for, he said, or because. I call it the Lord is my banner because the Lord has sworn this thing that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, if you turn that round, since there's going to be war in every single generation with Amalek, therefore, let the Lord be our banner in that warfare. Uh, we need that banner. And only as we have the Lord as our banner will we win. If somehow the Lord is not our banner, the opposition will begin to win. But as long as the Lord is our banner, we will prevail. And that, of course, obviously is illustrated in the very incident which takes place. That's what I mean by these things being an interpretive key. If you want to understand what it means for this fight to take place, for Joshua to go out with a sword, for Moses to go up with a rod, for his hands to be upheld by Aaron and Hur, and so on. The significance of the rod going down and the rod going up, the significance is that Jehovah is our banner and must be as long as we have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, to set the battle in its context, it is, as I mentioned, the first battle on the way to the land of promise. In fact, this is the very first battle 
that Israel has fought as the people of God. And simply because of that fact itself, you expect uh, some kind of significance to be attached to the battle. And what I mean by that is some kind of symbolic significance to be attached to the battle. Um, in fact, Moses commands Joshua to write it in the Bible. The Bible is already being written at this point. You know, when, the, uh, when the Lord says to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book. Sorry, it's Moses who's to write it. But he's to recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Again, we're being drawn attention to this fact that this battle is far more important than meets the eye. The battle with Amalek will repeat itself from generation to generation, but it will end in complete and utter annihilation of Amalek. And this is so important that God wants that written in the book. Well, written in the book it was, and written in the book we have it. Here it is in your Bible. Uh, we'll see something about that again later on. But this morning and tonight, with uh, God's help, I want to look at this uh, battle. And I think it's a battle that illustrates a very important text. The text is one we sometimes quote in prayer, and I think it's a text that at times like this we often reflect on, when the power of evil is unleashed to such a great degree. And the text is this, it's in Isaiah 59, 19, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. When the enemy comes in like a flood, which obviously happens here, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard or a flag or a banner against him. When the enemy comes in like a flood, let's begin with the enemy. In earthly terms, in ordinary historical terms, the enemy here is Amalek. Amalek, the man, was a descendant of Esau. He was a grandson of Esau, so he was related himself to the people of God. By this time, during Israel's 400 years in Egypt, Amalek had become a powerful tribe. And uh, quite possibly, they commanded the allegiance of other tribes nomadic tribes that were already in the Arabian Peninsula. Something similar to the way in which the prominent clans in Scotland would attract the allegiance of some of the lesser clans. So, for example, if you, if you read of a war between two clans, you could be sure that other clans were subservient to the leading clans in the war. So Amalek is described, actually, by Balaam in the Book of Numbers as first among the nations. The first a significant grouping among the nations. He possibly means to oppose Israel, but in any case, clearly a formidable enemy. Now, the Lord actually, as we notice, pronounces a curse upon this people. Their remembrance was to be blotted out. And uh, 40 years later, when Israel were entering the Promised Land, Moses told them before he died himself, he says, when you conquer the land and when you've actually achieved rest, in other words, you, you have no particular enemies as such, you'll not forget them. 
he says. You won't find them in Canaan, but you must not forget what they did. And you must blot out their remembrance from under heaven because I am blotting out their remembrance under heaven. In Deuteronomy, it's Israel that's blotting out their remembrance. But here in Exodus, it's God that's blotting it out. So God is going to use Israel to blot them out because God himself is going to blot them out, the remembrance of them. Now, that reaches way beyond their place in history. There's a a spiritual dimension to that. It, It is a blotting out of this people, really, from the book of life, if you can use such an expression. They are being disinherited from heaven itself and all its glory. Now, that in itself is a very important thing. The reason it's so important is that it just reminds us that Amalek here is more than Amalek. Amalek is representing the enemies of God, period. The enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we have enemies. I was saying this recently. Well, sometimes you don't need to remind yourself you have enemies, but sometimes you do. Very powerful enemies. Ultimately, of course, there's a sense in which your real enemy is sin, um, which you have to personify sometimes, because in a way it's not a thing, although in another way it is. But sin reveals itself. It reveals itself in the animosity of the devil against you. It reveals itself in a hostile, unbelieving world, which sometimes arouses itself powerfully against you. And of course, sin reveals itself within, in the flesh. So your enemy is the powerful triumvirate of the world and the flesh and the devil. That is your enemy. And they are the enemies, if you like, of God, the enemies of Christ, and the enemies of the Christian, the hostile, unbelieving world, the enemy within your own flesh, and the devil who is orchestrating or commandeering these events. Now, I want to say uh, three things about the enemy here, first of all. And the first thing I want to notice with you about Amalek is what God says about them in Deuteronomy 25, that they did not fear God. They did not fear God. Now, that's a very important thing because it takes us right to the heart of of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with your flesh and what's wrong with the devil. There is no relationship to God. That's at the heart of the the problem. The problem in in your warfare with them is caused by their relationship to God or the lack of. They have a relationship in the sense that they are enemies to God. You, if you are not a Christian, are an enemy to God. You do not fear him. Now, of course, that's not maybe not how you interpret your own position as an unbeliever. You would probably interpret it and you would explain it as being maybe neutral in this warfare. An observer... You look at Christians and you look at unbelievers, but you're neutral. And in your neutrality, you you possibly even lift yourself up above both. And you judge both. And you say, well, I am not just a neutral, I am agnostic. And I think that both parties are foolish to be as committed as they are. But it doesn't matter how you interpret your own position. God's the one who has the right to explain to you what it actually is. 
And the bottom line about you is that you don't fear God. That is the fundamental truth about you. Not any particular aspect of your character, not what you're like physically, not what you've attained in life. None of that. The most fundamental truth about you is that you do not fear God. You are a sinner, dominated by sin, living in the realm of sin, serving sin. That is what matters about you most of all. Now, like I say, you're not accustomed to thinking about yourself like that or thinking about others like that, but that's how the Bible describes us. We either fear God or we don't. We are either believers or unbelievers. We are heirs of heaven or heirs of hell. And in the last analysis, in some ways, that's all that matters. Now, um, the thing about us too, you see, is that we do have to serve somebody. You do have to fear somebody. Uh, You either serve others, serve yourself, or serve God. But it's all about God. Life is all about God. Everything is all about God. And fundamentally, what's wrong with you is that you don't fear him. The second thing about Amalek is that Amalek is deeply opposed to the people of God. In fact, they're opposed to the people of God just because they are the people of God. You'll notice that this attack, in, this attack in the wilderness was unprovoked. Again, there's a significance to that. It's unprovoked, except in so far as it's provoked by the very existence of Israel. <laughs> there are still people like that in connection with the nation of Israel or the Jewish people today. You'll notice that there's an unusual phenomenon that they are very often disliked or opposed because that's who they are. And sometimes people don't, don't really know why they oppose it. Uh, there are many nations which have it in their charter that Israel should be destroyed, should be annihilated as a nation, and should have no right of existence whatsoever in the world. Quite astonishing. That's not really denied to any significant people group in the world, the, the right to self-determination and the right of existence. But it is held by some against Israel. Now, That is a hangover from this. What's fundamentally at issue here is that the people who are opposed to God are opposed to the people of God. And if they're identified as God's people in any way, they are opposed to them. Um, I don't know if you remember way, way back when we were looking at the life of Esther, the Jewish queen of Persia. And um, a character rose to the fore in that book, Uh, a man called Haman. After these things, King Ahasuerus, who was the Persian um, king, promoted Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agagite. Now, that is another word for an Amalekite. And it seems strange to find an Amalekite appearing this late in Bible history. But here he is. And Ahasuerus advanced this Agagite and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So he became the king's right-hand man. Later, we're told that Haman spotted a Jew called Mordecai who refused to bow or to pay homage to Haman when he passed by, and Haman was filled with wrath. And here's the critical thing. And notice the, the, the bitterness that's coming out. 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. So instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Aswaras, the people of Mordecai. So Haman, the, the last surviving principal Amalekite with his family, Haman says to King Aswaras, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providence of, provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from other people's, and they don't keep your laws. It is not fitting for you to let them remain. If it pleases you, O king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do work, and I will bring it into the king's treasuries. So Ahasuerus took his signet ring and gave it to the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And then we read that on the 13th day of the first month, the decree was written and given to the officials of every province in the Persian Empire. Here you've got a genuine genocide against the Jewish people. Genuine genocide that in every single province, a command was given to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Notice how comprehensive that is. To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Now that, believe it or not, is an extension of this battle here. It's an extension of this battle here. It's the same battle. The Agagites or the Amalekites survive. And they survive eventually until they are purged out at this particular point in the time of Esther. Now, that reminds us that the opposition against ourselves, friends, as Christians, uh, will always be there. And sometimes it will rise to very high heights, or sink to low depths. And um, you, you have the feeling that we're on the cusp of one of these moments. I hope to God and pray that I'm wrong, but you do have the feeling that we are. There will be seasons of persecution. Marvel not, Jesus says, if the world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. And if the world does not love God, it won't love you. And if it wants to show its hatred for God, it will show it by hating you. Sometimes we can't touch God. The enemy can't reach him. The enemy can't wound him or hurt him. But it can hurt what carries his image and likeness. If it can't reach up to the throne to lay a hold of Christ and crucify him again, it can take a hold of you who are in the image of Christ, and crucify you instead. And, and so often we don't see or believe that that hostility is out there. It's there. It really is. It is there dormant in every human heart unless it is kept under by the common grace of God, by the restraining grace of God. 
the restraining grace of God used to sometimes be given a separate category from the common grace of God, although it is a branch of the common grace of God, the spiritual, that restraint that he places on the enemies. And sometimes that restraint is moved, removed, perhaps because of the unfaithfulness of the church. It is removed, and we live in such a time. We live in such a nation when it is being removed. And uh, again, it's worth remembering this. It's not just that the opposition here hates God and therefore hates the people of God. They are also in conflict about land and territory. Some people wonder if, if this dispute here between Amalek and Israel was a dispute ab about water and about territory. Uh, th that's to miss the point, really. The point is that the enmity exists for God's sake. It's all about God, remember. But at the root of that, there is a matter of who has a right. Who has a right to land? Um, the world thinks it does. The world thinks that it has a right to dictate where Christianity should live and if it should live at all. The world dictates that it has a right to eliminate Christianity from a school, eliminate it from a university, eliminate it from a city, or eliminate it from a nation by outlawing it and persecuting it as Haman did in the days of Esther. On the other hand, God claims this world as his. On what ground? Because it is. He made it. He fashioned it. He brought it into being by the word of his power, and he shaped it by the same word of his power, and he upholds it, every single part of its fabric, by the self-same word of his power. And every bit that belongs to the devil and to his philosophy and his lies is a pretense and a sham. And Christ is interested in the reclamation of this world until he reforms and fashions it into a new heaven and earth that is filled with his righteousness. So wherever the devil's principles prevail, wherever sin prevails, or humanism, or rationalism, or secularism, squatters. These things are squatters. But the world disputes that. You have no right to your schools as Christians. We won't fund your schools because you promote Christian philosophy. We will fund other schools that are run on our lines because the world belongs to the world and the world does not belong to God. Who do you think the world belongs to? Who do you think you belong to? Who does your child belong to? Who does a university belong to? Who does a government belong to? Whose is it? Once you answer these questions, you understand the nature of this conflict, how deep and pervasive it is. Whose are you? Are you your own? Are you God's? Whose are you? I'm my own boss. Are you? Who made you? To whom do you give account? Oh, you give account to yourself. Do you? There's a conflict. There's a, a, a general desire to stop Israel inheriting the land. There's a desire to stop the people of God making advance in this world. 
One of the sad things here is that Amalek is so closely related to Israel. I mean, God could have allowed any group of people, I suppose, in one sense to have attacked them, but Amalek himself as a person is third cousin to Ephraim and Manasseh, to put it in terms that that we can really identify with. The, the, The father of this clan is the third cousin of Joseph's children, Ephraim and Manasseh. I think that's a, a very powerful reminder to us that the devil sometimes creates the strongest opposition to those who are quite near to you. Even, even the Lord said that our greatest foes could be in our own household. They could be in our own household. Sometimes the power of evil isn't as clear anywhere as it is inside a church. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us that a true church of Christ can so degenerate through time as to become a synagogue of Satan. Can so degenerate as to become a synagogue of Satan. I was reminded of that just uh, three or four years ago, very strongly. I think I referred to this before, but I heard over in America of a very prominent Christian speaker who was banned from speaking about human sexuality in a university where she was booked to speak in a university. She was banned to speak in the university because the local churches complained. Astonishing. Astonishing. There you had a case where the secular university was going to allow it, and the church stopped it. Stopped it. Stopped someone speaking in the name of God on human sexuality. The devil is very active. Sometimes he's in possession of churches and he's in possession of people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters. And we're naive if we don't understand that. But again, it's so important to remember that Amalek here is under the judgment of God. I will, he says, blot out the name of the remembrance of Amalek. You know, that has a twofold fulfillment. In fact, you could make a case for it having a threefold fulfillment because in the first place, they've been blotted out in history. The fact of the matter is that you, that you would struggle to find a clear, explicit reference to the Amalekites in history outside of the Bible, either in history or archaeology proper. There's no clear reference to the Amalekites. But what's more significant is that they've been blotted out as a people. When they reappeared in prominence there under Haman, who authorized the decree to annihilate all the Jewish people, of course, that came back on his own head. That's what God does. Sin will always be a boomerang. It's the only weapon it is eventually. It's a boomerang. It comes back on you. It did come back on him. He was annihilated. And all his family and relatives were annihilated. Not because of a vicious act of vengeance, but because of the execution of the degree of God from the beginning. I will blot out the remembrance of Amalek. God saw to it that the line perished. And he saw to it that the nation was eliminated. The people were eliminated. And again, The reason for that is because it's serving to us as a powerful reminder of the profound spiritual truth underlying that, is that God's enemies will one day be obliterated or annihilated, not 
really annihilated, but annihilated as a people. Outside, into the outer hole of darkness, into the outer darkness, the black hole that is called hell. In God's new universe, it's all light and joy and love. There's just only one spot that you could almost describe as a parallel world outside the universe of God, which is characterized by weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, by those whose names have been blotted out of the book of life, who may have appeared in the visible church. There was a time when Amalek, you know, the father of this tribe, would probably say, the blessings belong to me. What Jacob got and what Israel got were for me, destined for me and for my people. At the end of the day, they probably couldn't care less about these things anyway because they had become so carnal and so worldly in their thinking. But they are outside. In the book of life by profession at some time, maybe in it by profession, but in reality, blotted out. They're not there. They're not there. Um, when God promises things, he, he does bring them to pass. Sometimes you think the Amalekites are prevailing. You'd think that in the world today. There are people again who think that the world must be coming near its end. It's an understandable thing to think. When the power of evil is unleashed, you, you feel that that must be it. But no, sure the Jewish people would have been forgiven for thinking when this decree was formally you know, issued that it was the end for themselves just as they probably thought in Egypt when Pharaoh had issued the decree. What if a decree was to be issued in this country to the effect that Christians were to be prohibited from holding posts in universities? Is that unthinkable? Or prohibited from being judges of the realm in the land? Is that unthinkable? Prohibited from becoming MPs in Westminster or MSPs in Scotland? Is that unthinkable? What if it should go further? You say, well, it can't go further. Well, just go back 80 or so years. Go back to the gas chambers. Go back to a democratic nation that decided that the best thing to do with the Jewish people was to incinerate them, to gas them out of existence. They had toyed with other measures. They had toyed with localizing them on a certain place on the earth where people didn't have anything to do with them, deporting them en masse. But you know yourself what the final solution was. It was to be rid of the problem for once and for all. These things remind us sometimes of how precarious our existence is on the one hand, but on the other hand, that God may allow a Haman to rise, but God will see to it that his word prevails. He'll see to it that the nations of this world do become the kingdoms of the Christ. They will become the kingdoms of the Christ. He'll see to it that the fallen church will rise again. He'll see to it that the preaching of the gospel will prosper, that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And whatever the power that is unleashed even in your own family, lay hold upon God, as we'll see tonight, lift up the rod to heaven, plead with the name of God to overturn and to overthrow, which God delights to do, to overturn sin and to overthrow it, and where sin abounds, that grace might much more abound. In some ways, this is a very similar incident to the one that's come before it. 
The church of God itself is murmuring, but water comes from the rock. This time the enemies are prevailing upon the church of God, but God sees to it that the battle is won. So Amalek is a defeated foe. And uh, you need to remember that the issues that we're speaking about here, friends, are eternal issues. That's the thing. They're to do with life and death. If you're not for God this morning, do you know that you're against him? If you're not for him, do you know that you're against him? Now, these enemies, although they're defeated enemies in one sense, they're very destructive in another. They can do much damage in an individual's life and in the story of the church. And what I want to do with you in the time we have left is, is just to look at the enemy's tactics here because they are extremely important. Um, the mastermind behind them is, of course, the devil himself. He has plenty intelligences under his control. There is a demonic realm that is vast, full of principalities and powers, but he is at the head and he is very clever and he blinds the minds of those who believe not. Now, when it comes to his tactics, it's important that we know them. I mean, if you, if you know the enemy's tactics, well, you're well prepared, are you not? It's, you could almost literally say it's half the battle. You'll still have to fight, but it's half the battle that you know what he's up to. Now, I could say a lot more about his tactics than I will, uh, in one way, because I don't have time. But for another reason, because most of you probably know them anyway. Paul said, we are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of his stratagems. Are you ignorant of the devil's devices? Well, you're probably not. But our great difficulty is not, not in working out his devices. It's in recognizing them when he's using them. That's the problem. Recognizing them. What I mean is this. You all know that the devil is a liar. And the father of it, Jesus says. He perverts the truth. But are you always aware of it? Are you looking for the lie? You know that the devil is the author of confusion. But how often when confusion appears, are you attributing that to the devil? How often in the midst of confusion do you, do you work against the devil and pray against the devil and dismiss the devil properly in the name of the Lord? You know that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. You know, you know that he likes up to bring bad thoughts up in your mind about brothers and sisters. But do you give in to these thoughts? Are you sometimes caught in a situation where you run away with thinking and saying bad things about the people of God before you've realized that you're doing the devil's work? Doing it for him. He's a liar. He's an author of confusion. He's an accuser. He's done all that before you've recognized any of it. And if you haven't been aware of it, he'll come in like a flood. And here he's come in on Israel like a flood. He does in our situations too. We live in a situation where lies abound. Lies abound inside the church. Lies, half-truths, confusion. Man, confusion in governments. Confusion in church courts. Confusion in the churches, confusion about the gospel itself, confusion about heaven, confusion about hell, confusion about atonement, confusion about scriptures, confusion. And 
accusers, accusations. Everywhere you look, divisions, accusations. The devil splits asunder, and, and we don't even know he's doing it. In terms of tactics, I just want to confine ourselves for a little while to the way that he actually operates here. Remember, it's the first battle. It's a determining battle. It's a symbolic battle. So let's notice what he does. We're told in Deuteronomy, when God says to Israel, don't forget Amalek, God says to them, remember how he came up when you were tired and weary. What a simple thing that is. The devil came up upon those who were tired and weary. That at the most basic level refers to simple tiredness and simple weariness. Um, You don't just get weary in the middle of something. Sometimes you can get weary before you're starting again. I've often wondered why this battle took place after the water came from the rock. Um, I would have expected this battle to come, in a sense, before the water came from the rock. Um, because you'd have thought they'd have such strength and such encouragement. Uh, it seems a strange time for the devil to attack. But the devil does attack at strange times. When, when, the, when the Bible tells us to be sober and to be vigilant, it's because you really have to be all the time. Some people will say to you, well, he he goes for you when you're tired. Well, yes, he does. He can also come to you when you're strong. Yes, he does. But it's significant here that we are told that he went for the people who were tired and weary, possibly tired and weary because they were having to move again. Um, A people who have just been refreshed by the waters of the rock can't be really tired and weary in that sense. They, they were complaining, but they've just suddenly been nourished and helped. What would make them tired and weary is the sense that they've got to move on again and go out into the wilderness and all the possible difficulties that that confronts. I mean, I, I remember quite often, uh, even in Glasgow here, not in this church, but in the church I was in previously, and sometimes elsewhere too, very often a church here would run, if you can use such an expression in our context, a church year would run, say, from September through to something like June. And you were tired at the end of June, perhaps, and everybody is normally, they go for a holiday and so on. But you were particularly tired, perhaps, when, at the thought of starting up again, particularly if there was a particular difficulty to be confronted. It, it was the thought of what lies ahead. And getting up from Rafidim, leaving the comfort of the water. Well, they had done that. They were in Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, but God said, get up and move on. So they got up and they moved on. At last, they're at Rephidim. And although they're tired and weary, God gives them water. But then after a while, he says, right, it's time to get up and move on. And they're tired and weary. And it's at this point that the devil moves in when they're tired and weary. Now, you can be tired in a work. You can be tired off a work. Uh, I've often felt tired in this work, but not tired off the work. But sometimes you can be tired off the work too. And although being tired in a work and tired off a work are not the same thing, they are connected. Because if you're a long time tired in a work, you'll soon be tired of it unless you refresh yourself constantly, 
unless you encourage yourself with the thought of your destination, not just with the last drink that you had, but the thought of where the journey is ultimately going. And even though there's a hard place ahead, you, you've got your eye on the finishing line. You're looking unto Jesus as the author and finisher of your faith. You're looking for the land that's flowing with milk and honey. You're not obsessing with every part of the journey. You know where you're going and you know where your eyes are fixed. And woe betide you if you, if you forget that. If you forget that. But make sure in whatever calling you're in on the world and as a Christian that you don't just simply tire yourself out. When your mind is tired and your body is tired, the devil will take advantage of that. But then God doesn't just say that Amalek came upon them when they were tired and weary, but that he attacked the stragglers who were at the rear. He attacked the stragglers who were at the rear. You've got to beware falling behind when you're tired and weary. Famously like Peter who followed afar off. In his head he thought he was close, but in his heart he was actually far off. You start falling behind. When you're tired and weary, you only start falling behind when you start failing on your knees. I don't know which Puritan originally said it. I know it came from the Puritans, but he said that all sliding backwards, all backsliding or declension begins on your knees. It begins in your relationship with God. At some point, you cease coming to God for strength and for courage and perseverance. You cease coming to him. It's so important in the Christian life, which is full of enmity, that you encourage yourself in the Lord. Like, like David, of course, at Ziklag, when the town was destroyed and everyone was taken captive, the people were ready to, to stone him. But we read that he encouraged himself in the Lord. What other encouragement did he have anyway? But he took that and he got it. He didn't give up. He encouraged himself in the Lord. We're, we don't even read that the Lord encouraged him. We're told that he took it in hand and encouraged himself in the Lord. See to it that however tired and weary you are, that you don't start declining here. Don't tire of prayer. Don't tire of meditation. Don't tire of reading the word of God. Don't tire in your relationship with him. But that happened here. And they started to lag behind and the devil noticed it. They couldn't keep up with the rest. Maybe they didn't want to keep up with the rest. They were the people maybe who were too quick now to complain. You've always got to watch when whatever's going on in your life, it starts to affect your commitment to the things of God, especially your commitment, let's say, to meetings that you suddenly deem to be non-essential. You suddenly become obsessed with what meetings are essential to attend and what meetings are non-essential to attend. And so maybe you'll only attend those meetings that will make sure that you're not blotted out of the communion role. We should really be more concerned with being blotted out of a more important role than that. Very often the first casualty will be the prayer meeting. Why? Because it's more spiritually demanding, perhaps. But the main reason is because your de desire to pray has been quenched. Your desire to hear other people praying has been quenched. 
And the reality is that your belief in the power of prayer has actually been diminished. That's the real reason. So you're not there because it's non-essential. You're not there because you don't really want to be there anymore. You're starting to straggle behind. There was a day when you'd have been at the forefront of the people wanting in the door. Now it's very easy to find an excuse. In fact, maybe the only meetings that are now quite attractive for you are the ones that are social or might have food and drink involved in them. Prayer meeting isn't in that category. Now, if you say, well, the devil's at work there, I would say in one way, yes, he is. But, you know, to be quite honest, he doesn't even need to get involved yet. He doesn't even need to get involved. In one way, he's still just stalking you. Still just stalking you. I don't know if you remember uh, some time ago, we, we looked at the little passage that I read at the beginning from First Peter about the devil as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I, I don't know if you remember how I, I took out at that time certain aspects of the devil's work in, in uh, harassing the Christian. I, I remember, for example, saying that when the devil is, is hunting um, his prey, uh, when the lion is hunting his prey, and when the devil is, is looking at the Christian church going up and down, seeking who, get, who he can devour, he hides himself. The lion hides himself. It's very important for him because everything a lion eats is actually faster than himself. That's the strange thing. Every animal that he eats is faster than himself. He's not a fast animal. But he hides himself, therefore, for a long, long time. And he has this particular uh, gift to look uninterested if he's noticed. So, for example, if he's chasing a gazelle or something like that, if the gazelle spots the lion, the lion looks away as though I'm, I'm not really interested. It's very interesting, that, because very often uh, we conclude that the devil is not on our case. We conclude maybe that he's looking elsewhere or he's too busily engaged with somebody else and he's not really a danger to me. I'm safe. I'm safe in the protective hand of God or whatever. Um, the other interesting thing is that People have noticed that if, if, the, if the gazelle, say, for example, or a deer or something like that, if the gazelle keeps the awareness of the devil's, of, of the lion's presence, uh, he won't actually be in danger. But if he loses the awareness of the presence, the lion will keep the chase. How fascinating that is, too. So easy to take your eye off him. But the, the critical thing is, see, that the lion is extremely patient. The lion will follow the pack until it gets what it wants. And what it wants is to see one that is weaker than the rest. And it wants gradually to isolate the one that's weaker than the rest. And it's only when the isolation is secured that the harassment begins. That's what I meant earlier by saying, well, the devil's got a hold when you've reached that point. It's what I meant by saying, well, he's hardly really started. His harassment only comes in when he divorces you from the people of God. When, he, when there's so much negativity in your own mind about the church and about the people of God, there's so much negativity there that the devil says, ah, I, I can move in. I, I can move in on you because you're on your own. Isn't it strange that it's on our own 
that the most critical things happen in a way. There was a, a saying, um, I think it originally came from Dante, although I saw it quoted elsewhere, um, down to Gehenna, up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. Down to Gehenna, up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. In other words, the person who does learn to be alone with God in a profitable way will make the fastest route heavenward. The person who is isolated and brooding and sinful and committing secret sin will go the fastest route to hell. Down to Gehenna, up to the throne, he travels the fastest who travels alone. But what I mean by that, I suppose, is this. It's strange how your justification for being apart from the people of God begins to change. What was once maybe disillusionment or tiredness or weariness becomes something altogether different. It becomes something like this. I don't really find their company profitable anyway. Instead of being too bad for them, you're suddenly too good for them. I don't like the prayer meetings because I don't really like the prayers. I find the prayers boring and I find them repetitive and I find them flat. As though my own was so good or yours. I don't need the prayer meetings. I don't need fellowships, really. Uh, I, I find too much of the fellowships not profitable for me. And little by little, what was once maybe a bit of well, discouragement or whatever, suddenly becomes a good dose of self-righteousness. Because the devil has come in to make sure that it all becomes a cesspool of pride and unbelief. Which is where every sin begins to fester anyway. Uh, soon the enemy will be in like a flood on your soul. And... Uh, even in secret with yourself, instead of good things, you'll find just darkness and confusion, unbelief and pride and bitterness and cynicism, complaining. All that remains for the devil is to enjoy his meal. That's all. Of course, the antidote to that is to make sure that whatever else is happening to you, that you stay in the company of the Lord's people. Uh, I'll say a lot more about what needs to, to happen, but just on, on that note itself, stay there. Uh, tell me, you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. If you do not know, fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. We should always, always be found there. But what do we do when he does enter? when he's come in like a flood, and we find ourselves a prey to him almost night and day with negativity, with bad thoughts, and with enforced isolation that we've enforced upon ourselves. Well, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, will lift up a standard against him. Now, the fact that the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard doesn't mean you don't have to. Moses lifted up this rod. You've got to lift up this standard too. So do I. We'll see what Jehovah Nisi means, God willing, tonight. May the Lord bless our thoughts on his word. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord, our God, uh, we pray that you would deliver us from these things.
which we all recognize, if we were all to be honest with ourselves. And uh, there are times when we all give way to these things, and how thankful we should be that we recognize the evil one, and that even when he harasses us and follows us, that we receive sufficient strength to rejoin the flock and to follow in the footsteps of those who feed beside the shepherd's tents and nourish themselves in the communion of the Lord's people and in the house of God. Oh, we pray to take this conflict seriously. And tonight, give us, we pray, renewed strength and vision. Give us liberty and unction and freedom as we look upon the glorious one who is to be lifted up before us. Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Christ, the giver of strength. The one on whom our eye must always be fixed. We ask it in his name. Amen. Our last uh, reading from the Psalms is in Psalm 10. And uh, page 210. Psalm 10, page 210. At verse 2, The wicked in its loftiness doth persecute the poor. In these devices they have framed, let them be taken sure. The wicked of his heart's desire doth talk with boasting great. He blesseth him that's covetous, whom yet the Lord doth hate. Move down to verse 9, or across on the other page. Verse 9, he lion-like, lurks in his den. He waits the poor to take. And when he draws him in his net, he pray, his prey he doth him make. Himself he humbleth very low. He croucheth down with all, that so a multitude of poor may by his strong ones fall. He thus hath said within his heart, the Lord hath quite forgot. He hides his countenance and he forever sees it not. O Lord, do thou arise. O God, lift up thine hand on high. Put not the meek afflicted ones out of thy memory. Let's stand to receive God's benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.